10 p.m. on August 10th, 1999, Courtney Harris told police that Philip Harkins threatened her with a gun. Minutes later, Philip allegedly shot Joshua Hayes, the muzzle of the gun a centimeter from his head. A little after midnight, police filed their report of the threats with the gun. Philip Harkins and Tony Randall were both named as suspects for assault with intent to commit a felony. And Philip for possession of a firearm by a delinquent felon. Police sent out an alert to be on the lookout for Philip and Tony. And three hours later, Tony and Philip were named for the first time in the murder inquiry. Police were told they lived at Pioneer Point Apartments. An hour after that, a witness said they saw Philip with a gun just before the murder. Police saw vehicles in the parking lot of Pioneer Point Apartments and made a cursory glance at the vehicles in case any evidence was obvious. By 11.30, the morning after Josh was killed, murder detectives believed the gun could be in Philip's apartment. Later paperwork suggests the detectives investigating the threats to Courtney didn't know about the murder inquiry. Thirteen hours after the murder, the medical examiner was preparing Josh's autopsy, and lead detective Jim Davis was approaching 32 hours into his day. The management for Pioneer Point Apartments said they suspected Philip of, quote, shady business. They had given him an eviction notice a month earlier. But prosecutors said they didn't think there was enough yet for a search warrant on the murder inquiry. At some point that morning, police found the warrant for Philip's arrest on the gun threats the day before. And just before one in the afternoon, officers stopped two vehicles leaving Pioneer Point. According to Philip's own description, years later, they corralled the vehicle into nearby Mayport Middle School. Tactical units rushed with firearms drawn. They ordered Philip and his passenger to comply with their commands. And then, Philip ran. Chapter 7 175 Days Philip ran into the woods east of Mayport Road when he bolted from the vehicle. Three different area police forces, including a helicopter and a canine unit, all chased him. It was the canine unit that eventually caught Philip a little before 3 p.m. on August the 11th. He was dragged to a patrol car. Police towed two vehicles and took Philip to be interviewed. About an hour later, police started to question Philip, reading him his rights. He told detectives he ran because his driver's license was suspended. Philip told them he had been at the home of his girlfriend, Keisha Thompson, from 8.30 or 9 p.m. the night before, and then they went to sleep. 
the phone number Philip gave police for Keisha didn't work. Philip admitted having a Mini-14 223 caliber gun that he shot at a gun range. The gun was seen at 8 the night before, and several people saw Philip put it on a shelf in the closet. He claimed that when he got home the next day, the gun was gone. It was now nearly 24 hours after the shooting. Tony Randall handed himself in to police. He told officers he saw Josh around 10.30 or 11 p.m. at the trailer park. He saw Philip with a gun. Tony said he tried to stay away from guns. He claimed he took a nap at 2 a.m. and didn't know what happened before that. But within minutes, he changed his story, and he admitted he was driving Philip's car. Detective Davis wrote in his report, quote, Tony then blurted out that he did not murder Josh and said that Josh was his friend. In a written statement, just after 9 p.m. the day after the murder, Tony said, quote, Philip shot Josh. Terry Glover was the eventual key witness, but it was Tony Randall who first identified Philip as the killer. Meanwhile, in the morning after the murder, detectives had taken 16-year-old little Leon from home with his mom to be interviewed. Mom claimed Leon got home on his bike around 10.15 the night before. Leon initially said Josh got into a car with unknown people. Later in the day, police interviewed Leon again and then went back to Philip. Philip said Terry could confirm dropping him off at Keisha's house. Philip said he was hungry. He was given two slices of pizza. Philip was in the interrogation room for nine and a half hours. Detective Davis described Philip's demeanor over that time as, quote, There was really no emotion by him. He was pretty matter-of-fact throughout the entire interview, throughout the day and night. My demeanor probably changed a little bit. I know I had been awake for a long, long time, which is starting to be very common. Philip didn't ask to speak to a lawyer, and he didn't refuse to answer questions. There were no dramatic pauses before his answers. A little after midnight, he was booked for the aggravated assault warrant for threatening Courtney Harris. Detective Davis met Keisha later that morning, August 12th. She said she had gone to sleep around 8 p.m. and Philip arrived at some point, but she didn't know when. Police went in the afternoon to the gun range. They saw a card signed by Philip on a visit to the range on July 31st. The range collected the casings from target practices, and they knew which bucket had casings from July 31st. Detective Davis left with a five-gallon bucket of 405 firearms brass. August 14th. 
four days after the murder. Police and prosecutors got a search warrant for Philip's home in Pioneer Point, apartment 612. They found a scream mask and a gun holster. A citywide appeal went out to police for Terry's car, and Terry was taken into custody around 3.30 that afternoon. Terry denied Philip's alibi of being dropped at Keisha's. Later, Terry admitted he had lied and that Philip had asked him to be the driver on the night of August 10th. Terry's new version of events was that he heard a pop at the boat ramp, and he said Philip was shaking. Terry told police, My mama always told me to cover your ass. I'm number one. Worry about myself. Don't worry about everybody else. At this point, he insisted Philip hadn't told him what he was going to do. At 10.30 p.m. on August 14th, detectives met with prosecutor Chris Karpinski. He said there was enough evidence to show Philip was the suspect who shot and killed Josh. Terry Glover was charged with accessory after the fact of murder, and Philip Harkins with murder. Prosecutors asked for a million-dollar bail for Philip and half a million for Terry. But a month later, Philip was released on a bond of just 15000 And he would largely stay free for the next three and a half years until he killed in Scotland. The FBI went to the gun range and traced the gun Philip fired there back to New Mexico. It had been sold for $300 towards the end of July. Blood was found on Philip's clothing, but it didn't match Josh. There was no DNA found on the masks, clothing, or Terry's car. On September 1st, Philip and Tony were charged with aggravated assault for threatening Courtney and her friend with the gun on the day of the murder. That same month, Terry was arrested for violating probation. Leon took a polygraph and finally admitted being at the boat ramp. He said he saw two individuals wearing masks, one of them a scream mask. A week later, another witness claimed Tony admitted being the shooter. Police interviewed Philip's cellmate, in jail in Jacksonville. Philip supposedly told him he wasn't at the boat ramp, and he pinned it all on Tony. The cellmate also said Josh's mother called Philip's mother, and she asked who killed Josh because she didn't know. Tony's own cellmate also claimed Tony was responsible, and that it was Leon who had set up Josh as the victim. In one of several entries, Detective Davis spoke with Josh's family. Patricia passed on information she'd learned. A witness 
said she heard Philip melted the gun down, and that Philip was representing himself in the case. Terry and Philip were both free by October, with the case stalled. There is a 40-day limit to being held in custody without charges being advanced. Terry later said he spent the next few months largely staying in the house. He claimed he was afraid of retaliation from the victim's family. And he wanted to avoid running into Tony or Philip. About two weeks after he got out, Terry and Philip were speaking on the phone when Philip said, I didn't think he was dead. Terry replied, Yes, he is. I saw his mouth drop. I saw his brain come out his head. I know he's dead. Terry also bumped into Philip at somebody's house. Philip told Terry, quote, I'm glad you're out. I'm happy to see you out. I'm glad they didn't get you. You know we can't never talk about the incident. Meanwhile, Detective Davis wasn't able to work on the case for several weeks. He was working on another homicide in October. By November, police wanted to use a violation of probation charge against Terry to push him to cooperate with the murder investigation. Instead, days later, prosecutors wrote to Josh's parents and said they were declining to file charges on second-degree murder. The lead prosecutor had left the office two weeks earlier. But police hadn't dropped it. In early December, Detective Davis spoke to Terry's lawyer dealing with the probation charge. The lawyer said Terry was willing to work with them. The lawyer said he couldn't understand why the state attorney's office was not prosecuting the murder. Just before Christmas, detectives said they were interested in locating the gun and further implicating Philip. They suggested a taped conversation between Terry and Philip. In the first week of the new year, Terry left a voicemail for Detective Davis. He didn't want to meet with him or help with the investigation. He didn't like the detective's attitude. Later that month, Assistant State Attorney Angela Corey took over the case. Now things started to move. On January 25th, detectives turned up at Terry's home with subpoenas for the family. Police turned up again to arrest Terry on the 31st. Terry called Philip and told him the police were there. Philip said, quote, Man, you know what the deal is. Angela Corey called and told Terry he could leave with officers voluntarily or wait for a warrant. Terry left voluntarily. Terry described it as, It ain't but one incident in my life that could bring the police back and forth to my house like this. That morning, they took Terry in handcuffs upstairs in the courthouse to Angela Corey's office. There were two detectives, and a short time later, his father. He was offered water and food, but refused. Anger overrides hunger, he claimed later. 
Terry explained he was angry at himself for getting into this situation. He said he was willing to talk to Angela Corey without a lawyer. He explained it later as, I didn't feel I needed a lawyer. I know my rights and I know how to talk to people. I didn't need a lawyer to talk for me. My father was there. If I needed any consultant, I can consult my dad. Terry told Angela Corey, No deal, no talk. He knew he was otherwise facing 25 years to life. They talked for an hour before the deal was struck. Terry would plead guilty to accessory after the fact and armed robbery. Terry told his subsequent deposition, I felt like I'm not fixing to give up my life for the next man. For one, he did it. Let him suffer the penalty. I'm not fixing to give up the rest of my life for something somebody else did. I got two children to think about. I'm not thinking about Philip or anybody else. I'm not dumb. This is the law. You're not going to just do no, you're not going to walk for no murder. Anything to do with the murder. My brother just did six years for the same crime, so I know I'm not going to walk. Did Terry get a good deal? Yes, he said. Anything's better than life. I'd rather do 15 than do life. It doesn't really matter. Anything's better than life. As long as I can, as long as there's a possibility I can see my children, I don't even really care. Terry agreed to testify for the grand jury with Judge Michael Weatherby. Angela Corey said time was of the essence. Remember, Florida has a speedy trial rule that means somebody must be brought to trial within 175 days of their arrest. On the same day as his deal with prosecutors, January 31st, Terry phoned Philip with police recording the call. But Philip wouldn't talk about the murder. Terry said in his later deposition, He kind of figured that what I was trying to get, what I was trying to get him to do. Because I give it to him. He's not dumb. It was one drawn-out phone call. On February 1st, Terry met again with Angela Corey. At 7.55 p.m., he signed an agreement with prosecutors and his attorney. Later that night, there was a new search for the gun. Terry said when they threw it from the Damas Point Bridge, it might have landed on Quarantine Island below. Detectives, the Florida Marine Patrol, and Career Criminal Unit searched the island. Terry Glover was overhead, indicating where Philip threw the gun. They searched that night and all day the next day. Nothing. Detectives and prosecutors tried again the next morning to get Philip to say something on the phone to Terry. No luck. Police returned to the gun range Philip used. The range master identified Philip from a photo spread as the man who had the Mini 14 firearm. At 9 a.m. on Thursday, February 3rd, Detective Davis testified before a grand jury. The grand jury system in the U.S. decides if there is a case to answer. They indicted Philip for murder in the first degree and robbery armed with a firearm or deadly weapon. 
It was the 174th day of a possible 175 after Philip's arrest for murder. 24 hours later, on Friday, February 4th, Philip was arrested, booked, and released within a couple hours. The police form states he was born in Scotland, but a U.S. citizen. Philip stood moot. A not guilty plea was entered on his behalf. He wasn't locked up to await trial, and that morning was the start of what would become 18 years of court motions and appeals. Let's deal with Philip's release first. He had bail bonds for both the aggravated assault incident and murder, but the assault charge was dropped when he was formally charged with murder, and Philip was released on his own recognizance, or ROR. No bail bond, no restrictions. He just had to turn up for court when required. Judge Michael Weatherby was the judge for the case. Now retired, he told me that he didn't remember the details of why Philip had been released on ROR, but the late date of the indictment may have required it. In this instance, Mr. Harkins was ROR. Uh, the, the warrant had a, an ROR release on his own recognizance on it. That was the way it was when it was brought to me. In that instance, the state attorney recommended it. Um, sometimes they do, but, but they do not generate that sort of thing. The, the matter of bond is strictly with the, in the discretion of the court. Um, now, there are some procedural rules which mandate an ROR. And in this particular instance, that would have been an issue, whether or not it was mandated, because, as we mentioned earlier, the the warrant was not issued until the hundred and you said the hundred and seventy fourth day. I'll take that as accurate. Um, and in our procedural rules, um, there are some instances. If you, for instance, if you get to that point and the state hasn't done A, B, C, and D, then the defendant's entitled to be released on his own recognizance. So. I'm, I'm assuming or I'm thinking that that's probably why uh, the ROR was part of that. I do not remember any specific conversation uh, about that, but it would not surprise me because within a week, I would have had, a, you know, had to have some bond hearing confronting the fact that he didn't get arrested until the 175th day or whatever the day was. Um, ROR's are also, um, in some instance, mandated when there's an adversary preliminary hearing, which there was not in this instance. Uh, that's a that's a different uh, procedural step, but the results of that could be that a defendant is released mandatorily on his own recognizance. So, you know, basically, that's that's my recollection of how Mr. Uh, Harkins got the ROR, and. Uh, 
so far as I can remember, he honored it right up until the time that he didn't. <laughs> the morning of his arraignment, Philip's lawyer said they had only just seen the indictment, and he was going to file a notice for expiration of time for speedy trial. Angela Corey said they would be ready for trial in a little over a week. Philip's lawyer filed a notice of discovery, so wanting to see everything the state had in the case. And he wanted to exclude any evidence or testimony of the aggravated assault before the murder. Both the U.S. and Florida constitutions guarantee the right to a speedy and public trial. The speedy trial rule in Florida means a person must be brought to trial within 175 days of an arrest on a felony charge, such as murder. Lesser charges or misdemeanors have a 90-day limit. But charges aren't automatically dismissed if a trial doesn't start within 175 days. A defendant or accused has to file what's called a Notice of Expiration of Speedy Trial Time, and that sets off another deadline, 15 days. If a trial doesn't start in that time, and it's not the fault of the accused, then the charges could be dismissed. This is not an absolute rule. For example, if an accused asked for any delay to a case, that could be treated as waiving the speedy trial rule. If the accused or their lawyer was late for court, that could waive it. And if a defendant asked to see all information that prosecutors have for a case, that could cancel out the time limit. COVID caused the rule to be abandoned in many cases. Angela Corey told the court, Judge, and let me make something perfectly clear on the record because defense counsel put this on on Monday. This defendant has not been harmed by the speedy trial rule in the sense that he has not been held in the jail, and those are the types of defendants whom that rule is designed to protect. He was released as soon as the state thought it did not have enough evidence. I informed this court and this defense attorney that we thought we had new evidence come forward, and it has been coming forward every day since last week, and I intend to proceed with the homicide charges within the speedy trial dictates. But if it is going to be on the calendar Monday with the demand for speedy trial, I don't intend to respond to discovery. I intend to ask this court to set it for trial, and we go to trial. It is not fair for him to have it both ways. Trial was set for February 14th, a little over a week later. Monday, the 7th, the state filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty. Angela Corey said she hadn't made a definitive decision on that. She also stated she wanted to use the two women held up at gunpoint by Philip earlier on August 10th. Not to show prior bad acts, but as witnesses to the possession of the same weapon that killed Josh. And Philip's lawyer now argued that the 175 days had expired and he hadn't been brought to trial. The trial was days away, 
On the Tuesday, police and Angela Corey took a sworn statement from a teenager who overheard Philip asking Terry to help with the robbery. At 1.30 in the morning on Wednesday, police brought in Kim Holloway on a warrant. She had two children from Philip and gave a sworn statement about what he had told her in the past few months. When Philip was first arrested, he wrote from jail and told her to tell his daughters he didn't murder Josh. When he was later released, this is what he told Kim. He told me that he was with T. Randall and some people. He started crying and everything. He just said he didn't mean for it to happen. It was an accident. And I was like, what do you mean it was an accident? What are you talking about, Philip? Did you murder the boy? He said, I'm not saying that. I don't want you to tell anybody I said that. I'm just saying I just didn't mean it to happen. It was an accident. And I said, well, what are you saying, Philip? Did you murder the boy or not? And he said, I'm not going to say all that. I'm just going to say it was an accident and hope that the boy went to heaven. He didn't mean for the gun to go off either. He just said it was an accident. And I kept asking him, did he do it? He didn't outright say he did it. He didn't say he did it or if T. Randall did it. All he said is he just didn't mean it to happen like this. He just should have stayed in Tampa and all this kind of stuff. Hours before Kim was taken to be interviewed by police and Angela Corey, she said she called Philip. She needed to get some diapers. He said he thought Tony did the murder. She asked him why he didn't tell police that. Philip said he was going to, quote, let people hang themselves. She asked, What do you mean hang themselves? You're going to jail for murder? And going to do a death sentence? And you got two kids that you're not helping me with and you're going to let them hang themselves? You need to start snitching on people so you can help me with these kids one day. But Philip said he'd stick to his plan. Later on the Wednesday, Angela Corey made Detective Davis available for a deposition with Philip's defense. She said it was an unusual case, and they were working on it as recently as 2 a.m. that morning. Philip's defense was only allowed to ask about the homicide report prior to the new information in January and February. The transcript of the three-hour deposition is a mix of impatience, brusque summaries of the case, and Angela's dismissals of the defense. After a lengthy session, she moved to cut off the deposition after another ten minutes. I have a murder victim's father waiting to see me. When Philip's defense protested, she replied that this was the deal when she agreed to produce the detective for a deposition for about three hours. She added, I mean, if you don't want the extra ten minutes, that's fine with us. I'll take the extra ten minutes, said Philip's lawyer. Thank you. Why can't we all just get along, said Detective Davis. We are. Another assistant public defender asked a few minutes later, as the deposition was cut off, when they would resume. Well, we are going to trial on Monday, so there is no time to resume. Angela Corey's then-boss, Harry Shorstein, fired her in 2006 after she decided to run for election against him. 
he later decided not to run for re-election, and Angela Corey won handily to become the state attorney for the Fourth Judicial Circuit. Angela Corey did not reply to requests for interview. When I interviewed him in Jacksonville, Harry Shorstein did not recall this case, but reviewed the docket list. This is shameful that we, we can continue cases oh, forever and ever and ever, and you can't, the defense can stop it by demanding speedy trial, but most defenses don't want to do that. You know, there's a hope someday it'll go away. Uh, but God, this is one of the worst. He gave credit to Angela Corey for being good with victims. I can't imagine. The, the victim's family, certainly, they believe that, that Angela Corey was on their side, that, that she was... No, she was wonderful. Uh, and I don't want to give you the history. Victims have constitutional rights in the United States, really starting with Janet Reno, I think. It's part of the Constitution now. So... If you were the next of kin, at least, you would have an absolute right to meet with the state attorney and to speak to the judge. Uh, Angela was good at that. She, because she thought, I think, thought it was politically expedient. I mean, she's got pictures always hugging and kissing the uh, uh, cops and the uh, victims and everything, which is fine, except your main job. If you work with me, your main job is to be a good lawyer and to prosecute the cases. Uh, you'll, I would never allow you to be discourteous to a victim uh, family, but she was probably the extreme, with, particularly with cops and victims. The first trial date for Valentine's Day never went ahead. A motion for a continuance was granted. On the 17th, Angela Corey submitted a lengthy justification for why the case was exceptional. She argued the defense had to choose between two rights, either a speedy trial or discovery. She said the case was so unusual and so complex that it was, quote, unreasonable to expect adequate investigation or preparation within the periods of time established. Efforts were made to obtain truthful testimony, and truthful was written in all caps, from Tony and Terry. She wrote, The state of Florida, even with subpoena power and the granting of immunity, cannot force a change of heart and conscience. There is no way to convey in this response the human emotions involved in 17-year-old Terry Glover's decision after extensive consultation with his family and two different lawyers, to change his mind and admit the truth. This decision of his heart and conscience was not made until January 31st, 2000. To have compelled untruthful testimony from Glover at any time prior to that would have been to no avail. The most compelling indicator of Glover's unwillingness to be a truthful witness is a taped recorded phone message left by Glover for Detective Davis saying he absolutely would not speak with him. That day, the court extended the speedy trial period for 120 days. 
Judge Weatherby said he was comfortable with extending it because Philip wasn't in jail. He said there was, quote, not a snowball's chance that either side could have adequately tried a first-degree murder case. A couple weeks later, Philip's defense made a motion to discharge the case. It was rejected. In May, the court rejected an attempt to attribute the delay to the state. Philip went to the Florida Supreme Court. They knocked him back and told him to go to the First District Court of Appeal, which he did. They denied his petition and said the speedy trial issue could be appealed later if there was a conviction. Every month, the case had a date and got passed on. There was another motion to discharge the case because the extension had expired. That was rejected. And then very little happened for a year. Trial dates were set, but they didn't start. Then the court found Leon Madden in contempt for failing to appear for a deposition. And Philip's defense wanted Tony Randall blocked as a witness because they couldn't find him. They twice tried to get the court to force the state to hand over everything they had. And there was another motion over the speedy trial rule based on another case. They said that proved Philip should not have to choose between the right to a speedy trial and the right to know the state's case against him. That motion was again rejected. And all that happened in the six months after Philip left the country and was hiding in Scotland. Court motions and hearings, but nobody knew he was gone. Fifteen years later, after he was returned to Florida, Philip's new lawyer made two more attempts over the speedy trial issue. This time, however, they argued the 175 days started the day he was caught after running from a vehicle into the woods. That was August the 11th. He was formally arrested for murder on the 14th, and all previous appeals counted from that day. By the new count, defense said the 175 days expired before the grand jury ever saw the case. When Philip was fighting extradition in the UK and Europe, he occasionally mentioned breaches of Florida law. Those weren't relevant to the extradition. But he also focused on the changing stories against him from witnesses, and especially the state's deal with Terry. There were no prints on the Ruger Mini-14 magazine or 223 caliber cartridges found at Philip's apartment. But Philip never mentioned the bullet casings in his UK cases. The gun was never found, but the casing at the murder scene matched at least one from a sample of the 405 shells collected at the gun range. Those included shells from the day Philip took target practice. 
and Philip's signature matched that of the card at the gun range. And the range master identified his face. Wherever it was, it had been a gun Philip owned that was used to kill Josh. Witnesses saw him with the gun. Witnesses saw him at the boat ramp. Philip told Kim, the mother of his children, that he was going to use his girlfriend, Keisha, as his alibi. Years later, fighting extradition in the UK, he claimed he couldn't find Keisha. Last he heard, she was in New Orleans and could have been lost in Hurricane Katrina. I found her. Murder Without End is reported and edited by Tristan Stewart Robertson and produced by Liam Pollock. Music by Dylan Anthony. Artwork by Jason Skinner. Angela Corey's quotes were read by Carrie McClure. Demetrius Schaefer read the quotes of Terry Glover and Nancy Schaefer read those of Kim Holloway. Sources for this episode are court records, police reports, hundreds of pages of depositions and interviews. All the quotes I read came directly from sworn statements, depositions, or police reports. Journalism like this might be free to listen to, but it isn't free to make. A Murder Without End was created without any funding. All research, archive audio, voiceovers, and music were sourced and paid for by myself. So if you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with your friends, leave a review, and visit our website, tomorrow.is, to donate what you can. Any support you can spare would be invaluable. Thank you for listening.